There's nothing like a story about a club that rises like a phoenix from the ashes after it had been down in the dumpster. Well, this is the story we are going to tell you about B4B today in the last part of our mini-series about Borussia Dortmund. My name is Nick Viltang and I'll do my darndest to take you through the third and final part of this series. Joining me today is once again the author of the book Borussia Dortmund, A History in Black and Yellow, Talking Foosball Zone, Terry DeFallon. Howdy Nick, how are you doing? Great, great. Excited to talk a little bit about uh, your team. And well, what we do know from the book Soconomics, written by Simon Cooper and Stefan Szymanski, is the fact that coaches don't matter most of the times. However, as it turns out, on a very rare occasion, one coach can turn around the entire fortunes of a club. And that is the story we're going to tell you today. Right. On the last episode of our series, we talked about how the club itself managed to rescue itself from going under. However, at the same time, the team on the pitch never really found a stable footing under the coaches who followed Matthias Zama in 2004. After Thomas Dolceren's stint at the club that ended in 2008, it was time to hire a new coach. And this time around, the choice was former Mainz manager Jurgen Klopp. How was that signing considered back in the day, Terry? Well, I think that it was considered quite favourably. The life under Thomas Doll had been very austere. I mean, the only highlight being having been arrived at that cup final by mistake, really. And Klopp was regarded as an up-and-coming coach, obviously a young coach, and, you know, having done an excellent job at Mainz. And I think that people felt that Dortmund were in a place where they were recovering from financial calamity and trauma, and needed probably uh, somebody who might be able to make the best out of limited resources. And I think that, you know, he was perceived as being a, a great man manager, a great one-on-one coach, and someone who might be able to lift maybe relatively ordinary players and get them to excel. And I think that that's just what Dortmund needed at that point. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about the relationship between Klopp and the fans. Because it was really a special one right from the get-go, right? Yeah, I mean, he made a concerted effort to engage with the fans. I think he knew perfectly well that this was going to be a longish-time project. One of the things about managing a club like Dortmund with a huge fan base is that they can turn on you if things don't go well. And if, as he perceived that, you know, it was going to take a while to make Dortmund relevant again, successful again that there would need to be, you know, some patience, some patient recruiting, having to bring in players that maybe, you know, in the recent past they would not have expected to have seen the black and yellow shirt. And he set about communicating and engaging with the fans, trying to explain his project, what he wanted to do, what was going on. He would regularly meet with fans in pubs during the week and, and talk to them and explain what he was trying to do and what he hoped to achieve. And I think it laid the groundwork for a very special, close relationship. But it also, I think, educated the, the fan base that, you know, there may be some tougher times ahead. But if that's the case, then don't lose patience, don't lose faith and, and keep supporting the team. So on the last episode, we talked a little bit about Thomas Doll, his style of football or the lack of style, rather. When it came to the football, he was having the team play. So what did Jürgen Klopp change compared to his predecessor, Thomas Doll, on the pitch? 
Well, thinking back to watching those games back then, I mean, Jurgen Klopp team, when he took over, it was obviously very different in terms of personnel to the one that went on to achieve such success. Also, you know, the, the, tactically, I, I mean, Klopp is a sort of student of Wolfgang Frank and, you know, very much the modern coach. Well, Wolfgang Frank was the guy who came in and, and, and revolutionised that Mainz team to the point where there weren't any other coaches around that could carry on the project after Frank had left. And that's why Klopp got the job. But there was still quite a lot of finessing that had to be done. And I think for me, what he brought was a, was a lot of energy and a couple of players who just were able to, you know, be a little bit more creative and interesting. And I don't really feel that there was that much of a change to Dole's tactics. I thought that it was pretty straightforward. It's just he was able, I think, to motivate players and just get the best out of them. And they played with a lot more purpose and energy. Thomas Dole's teams were really pedestrian in their outlook, quite conservative. I think Klopp, at least, you know, spiritually, wanted to just lift the players and, and, and make life a little bit more interesting and try and play a bit better football. But the really technical stuff was to come a little bit later, I think. Mm. So before they finished sixth in 2009, uh, after, you know, a bit of a topsy-turvy first season. And, you know, given that the squad Klopp had at the hand was relatively young, and that is a spectacular achievement. And uh, the following season, the Klopp did one better by finishing fifth. Which players would you like to highlight as being important during those first two years of Jürgen Klopp at Borussia Dortmund? You've got to start with Roman Weidenfeller, who had been at the club for a while at this point, but, I mean, an extremely safe pair of hands and a very competent goalkeeper. You've also, you're looking at the formation of the defensive partnership at this point. You've got Neban Subotic and Mats Hummels joining up at this point, and Mats Hummels particularly coming from Bayern Munich, a sort of... Not a forgotten man, but certainly not able to break into that Bayern Munich squad quite young. And him and Subotic, you know, put together one of the great all-time great defensive partnerships. And you're also seeing, you know, the, the development of that classic back four, which would be joined by Piszczek a couple of years later, Marcel Schmelzer. Only recently left the club and still and, and a former captain in the end. Hugely, hugely popular, extremely effective. And I would also like to pay tribute, you know, you've got also Kuba is there, but again, not quite, you know, formed. We're seeing the emergence of Nuri Jahin as well. But I would like to pay tribute to, you know, Thomas Heinel as well, who I think is kind of maybe a bit of a forgotten man, Hungarian international, not a world-class player, but brought a lot of energy and creativity to, to what was a, you know, a pretty average side, you know, at times. As well, I, I watched him a couple of times and, and, and really, really enjoyed him. But, you know, there's this mixture of sort of like, there's guys like, you know, Mosey Dan and Alex Fry, who was a little bit before this. But I just want to pay tribute to those kind of players because, you know, they were good, solid footballers who worked really, really hard, talented guys, and helped, I think, helped Klopp enormously in those times. But I think we we, we should have to mention Lucas Barrios, who arrived... Um, from Colo Colo, he, well, he's, a, he's an Argentine, he's a Paraguayan international, but he's an Argentine, born in Buenos Aires. But what a player he was, like lightning quick, you know, a, a proper goal poacher, tremendous pace, you know, moved the ball very quickly, met the ball beautifully, a tremendous energy as well, and really lifted the team and, and provided the goals that all football clubs need uh, in order to, to achieve anything. And that, uh, particularly in that, 2009-2010 season had a fantastic season but but prior to that 
you know, you could see what was emerging here. And that was a tremendous piece of business. I think it was like 400,000 euro or something like that, that Michael Zork paid to bring Lucas Barrios to the club. And, and, and it worked almost from the off. It did indeed. So that steadied the ship for Borussia Dortmund. But so far, we can't really spin the yarn of a fairy tale just yet. I mean, yes, they stabilized, but hey, we, we talked about what went on before. But um, at this point, you would imagine that the hierarchy at the club and the fans are pretty happy about what's been going on so far. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly my impression. I mean, and, you know, on the times that I visited the stadium and, and watched games, you know, the one of the things, and this... Uh, has always struck me. I mean, I'm, I mean, I don't go all the time. I can't. But I mean, one of the things that always strikes me, and the thing that I love about Dortmund, is, is that it is usually a happy place. And maybe I've been a bit lucky with results, but but it's it strikes me as always being a fairly happy place, and 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 where you know the fans don't need an excuse to get behind the team. I think that I was probably expecting Dortmund maybe to be a little bit more mid-table. Uh, I wasn't expecting them to challenge for Europe. And uh, and I was hugely delighted the, with the results, but also the way in which they were playing. I mean, they were just like there was just so much more fun, more so much more reason to get engaged with them, and to get involved with them. So so yeah, I, I can't see how too many people would have been unhappy with the way that the club was progressing under Klopp at this time. Right. Uh, just one question that popped into my mind, Terry. Is Dortmund your happy place? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I, <clears throat> yes, I mean, for the purposes of, uh, in the context of football, Dortmund is my happy place. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Good news then. Well, anyways, uh, as I said, we can't really just spin the yarn of a fairy tale return to the top just yet, but we'll do that in part two of this episode. Well, during the 2010-2011 season, the word gegenpressing was on everyone's lips. So what did that tactical weapon entail, Terry? So this is in, in the basic form is a way of, of, of closing down the opposition when you've just lost possession. In order means to get the ball back as quickly as possible and to place the uh, opposition un under pressure. And I think there have probably been examples of, of this that go back a lot further than 2010. I talked about Wolfgang Frank, and then we've talked about Steppi's Eintracht Frankfurt side that maybe people might look at those the way they played and, and feel the same way. But Klopp, if you like, formalised it and certainly was the best exponent of it. And yeah, I mean, it caught the opposition to a degree unawares and gave the team something of a tactical advantage. And, you know, it was, was seen as a, being a bit of a step up, a bit like a, when a Formula One team finds a tactical advantage through inventing something and then bolting it onto the car. And it takes a little while for the rest of the teams to catch up. They're all at it now. Yeah, I mean, uh, it took everyone by surprise because Dortmund were so aggressive in their pressing that none of the teams literally knew what to do with that or against that and how they could defend against that. I mean, Dortmund really were brilliant at keeping the ball in the opposition's half. And additionally, uh, a player I would also think uh, deserves highlighting from those days is, is the young Mats Hummels, who, you know, in addition to uh, Dortmund being able to press really high up the pitch, you had a guy at the back who could play passes from, you know, from the back with millimeter precisions, bringing the ball 60, 70 yards up the pitch and initiating attacks in that fashion. So that 
in itself was a brilliant tactical weapon as well, which is uh, oftentimes forgotten when people talk about Jurgen Klopp's side in those early days. You know, I seem to remember that I think it was Jos Luekai at Augsburg who thought that Hummels was that dangerous a tactical weapon that he actually gave him a man marker. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, man marking brought back to the pitch back in 2010 or 2011. What an incredible development. Yeah, I mean, it makes you think about old, the way old teams in Germany, or teams in Germany play back in the old days, and they used to play with a libero, didn't they? They used to play with the extra man. They loved, they loved the sweeper. They were obsessed with sweepers for decades. Yeah, I mean, that in, was in Germany. Wolfgang Frank's biggest, uh, you know, biggest accomplishment was actually introducing a back four at Mainz. Yeah, because, pers- persuading I mean, German f- football players that they don't need a libero, which, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the German I mean, national team played with a libero at the... Uh, you know, 2000 euros. They played with the Libro with in, in 98. And the, the Danes won, won the European Championship with the back four back in 92. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, they've been wedded to this this concept for a very long time. And it, it, But the interesting thing about what you've been saying about about Hummels is still this this notion of, a, of, of albeit not a Libro, but a player from the back four being able to inflict that kind of damage in an attacking sense. And as much as we might sort of maybe look askance or sideways at maybe the outdated idea of the Libro, but the idea of a of centre-halves being able to be utilised as attacking weapons is quite an interesting one, and it's good to see that it's still evolved in that time, albeit largely because of the individual talent of a, of, of a single player. For decades, footballers, defenders in England were, were not in any way conditioned, rarely conditioned on centre-half, the idea of the centre-half being utilised in that manner was very, very alien, and most of them were expected to just get rid of it and not think about converting that into, a, into an attack. So it does sit well nicely with German football culture. But you're right to point out Klopp's tactics were direct. I mean, it's harsh to say they were long ball, but they were very direct. I mean, he, he, he was quite happy to bypass the midfield. But then, yeah, when you've got Mats Hummels who can do that, then then why wouldn't you? And use that really well. And it worked with spectacular results, it's got to be said. Yeah, I mean, if you are a boxer, why wouldn't you use your right hand? So, well, I, I just mentioned Mats Hummels as one of the key bricks in, in Klopp's system uh, for those uh, championship-winning seasons. So Borussia Dortmund won the championship in 2011 and 2012, and they did so in spectacular fashion as Bayern was struggling under Louis, a certain Louis van Gaal. Which place would you point out as being the stalwart of, of that first championship winning campaign, which is now over nine years ago, <laughs> 11 years ago? Yeah, I, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? You've got to look, uh, obviously, at that back two, which we talked about in the last part. So I won't talk too much on them. Huge love I will give to Kevin Grosskreutz, who was probably not the most talented player there. But the club was, you know, etched into his heart and worked extremely well as a as a utility guy. This is also they're talking about the emergence of Nui Jahin as well. And it would be crazy to not talk about him and the tremendous impact that he had from the midfield and the energy that he brought and the talent that he had. And like look at um Sebastian Kiel as well, still still going along, still still bringing that. But I mean, I think it's sort of, you know, Barrios for me, Jahin and that and that back two slash back four, just still putting in, you know, tremendous performances and just putting it all together. Those are the guys that I would look at. Yeah, and, and you know, the following season, after the 2010-2011 campaign, uh, Dortmund actually did one better and won the double, 
defeating Bayern München in a cup final uh, with the somewhat incredible scoreline of 5-2. I mean, first of all, how would you describe that campaign? Well, it's probably worth bearing in mind that you've got some significant additions to the squad, haven't you, by this point? So you've got Piszczek, who's coming in at, at this point as well, into that back four. And then in your midfield, you've got Shinji Kagawa, who's come in, not as a replacement, but bearing in mind, Nuri Jahin is left by this point. Shinji Kagawa has come in, and Mario Goetzer has come to the fore. And of course, Lewandowski joins. And, you know, by this point, you've got the complete team. And this is the team that goes on to win the double. And it's phenomenal. I mean, they're just, they're just markedly better than absolutely everybody else. And you're looking at this team and you, with, with a degree of wonder. This is not just a team that's capitalising on the fact that Bayern's sort of like having a bit of maybe, maybe not at its best because it's going through a bit of a transitional period as well, like those Louis van Gaal years. But again, you know, this we're, we're talking around, it's not the same year, it's the same season. Season before, you know, Bayern Munich gets the Champions League final. This is not a bad Bayern team to beat. The final Doheim, which, uh, you know, ended in a penalty shootout loss to uh, Chelsea. Yes, yes, indeed. And of course, the season before as well, they lost to Inter as well. Yeah, more, you know, in, in, in perhaps a more decisive way. But they weren't chumps. You know, they pretty much blew everyone away and were convincing champions, beating Bayern and then, of course, beating Bayern in the, in, in, in the final just, is, just like cements that and cements that achievement. And, you know, it's not been, been rivaled since, really, from, from a Dortmund point of view anyway. <laughs> well, a few years after that cup final, uh, Aki Watzke said that he saw in the Bayern officials' faces that they weren't going to take this sort of thing lying down going forward on that night. So this meant that Bayern adapted to Bifobe's tactics and they pretty much started to throw the kitchen sink at Borussia Dortmund when it came to using money on the transfer market. For instance, they broke the then German transfer record by bringing in Javier Martinez for, I think, over 40 million euros, which was a lot of money back then. These days, it sounds like it's signing on the sheep, but uh, back then it was uh, a significant amount of dough. And ever since, Bayern has actually won every single championship every season going forward, as, as we all know. But there was one last highlight, and that was the Champions League final of 2013. So talk us through that crazy Champions League campaign and why Frank Ribery stayed on the pitch. You, you know what, Nick? I, I must confess, I, I've, <laughs> I find it difficult to look at, at the, even the highlights of the 2013 Champions League final. It's very it's very, very difficult. It's quite painful. You know, I mean, by, and by that point, as you quite rightly pointed out, you know, they were under Jupp Heynckes, they had, to a degree, you know, taken their cue from Klopp's tactics and they developed a very modern team that, you know, had suffered great heartbreak uh, the previous season. I think Jurgen Klopp even gave an interview to The Guardian ahead of the Champions League final saying that Bayern are like the Chinese. He did. They copy everything and make it better. <laughs> yes, which I thought was a bit unkind, but I mean, I can understand why but he said that. But not untrue. No, but not, un but not untrue. And, and you can see, I mean, this gives sort of people an indication of the level of Bayern resentment, the, the resentment that there is towards Bayern, because they do have, you know, they, that they have the resources to be able to to overcome any opposition. Uh, they just have to get their act together sufficiently to be able to do it. And that, of course, this requires more than just money. That requires good people and the right people. But, I mean, back to Dortmund. I mean, it was a, 
extraordinary uh, run to the final, probably just best exemplified by, by I think, the game against Malaga, which was just like... I think if I'd been a Malaga fan, I'd be pretty angry with the way that went down. It ended in a lot of drama, and I wonder whether or not in the age of VAR, whether or not that would have happened. No, it wouldn't. No. Uh, So it was uh, unbelievable, but I think it is worth bearing in mind in case you're feeling that perhaps Dortmund were undeserving, that of course they did knock out Real Madrid on the way with an absolutely virtuoso performance, I think, you know, by Robert Lewandowski and... I think for me that's the highlight of the of of this of the season that kicker headline Wembley Vierkommen after the first leg of of both semi-finals where the two German teams had done so magnificently that really really was it was you know a foregone conclusion that Dortmund would play Bayern in the final as it happens Real Madrid bit back in the second leg and made it close as we are used to them doing but but unlike PSG and unlike Manchester City, Dortmund held on and were able to get to the final. But that's a measure of just how just that's the pedigree of that of, of Real Madrid. It was a wonderful thing, and I remember firstly thinking, "There's no chance I'm going to be able to get tickets for this game," and I live in the same city, and that's really really disappointing. And I remember I was just thinking, "This is going to end in a gut wrenching fashion. We're going to lose this game to Bayern Munich. I just know it." Fortunately, I have nothing to do with the club and I'm not in a position to transfer my negative vibes to them. But I, I just wasn't surprised. Unfortunately, I was just a bit miserable and depressed. I was watching it in a pub in, in London. But I choose to think about the Malaga game you know, and the tremendous luck that we had for that. And I choose to think about the Real Madrid performance, which was just like on another planet. Just fantastic, you know. That's the signature for performance of me and also the from the season before the cup final performance, the 5-2 you know, these are the signature performances. I think about when we went with Mitch Langerak in the first title-winning season to beat Bayern without Roman Weidenfeller, with Mitch Langerak making his debut, I think. I'm thinking about what a heroic performance that was. I think about the 5-2 German Cup, the Lewandowski hat-trick, but also Kagawa, like, you know, in front of Sir Alex Ferguson, just like putting in a virtuoso performance against Bayern. And then I think about Real Madrid. And these, are, for me, are the, are the great moments in the Klopp era that you could define. If you wanted to build a book around that, then you'd build it around those three, those three, ga- those three games. Indeed. Well, I mean, Bayern, they had a certain level of respect or even feared Dortmund slightly as, as they found it necessary to leak to the press that they had signed Mario Götze on a buyout clause. I think it was the day before one of the Real Madrid matches. I don't, I don't recall if it was the first or second leg. It was one or the other, wasn't it? It might have been the second leg. I can't remember. But yes, I mean, this is a, but this is a measure of how far Dortmund had got and I think how worried that Bayern were that perhaps Dortmund under Klopp might continue to go forward. And yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is pretty classic Bayern stuff. It was something that Klopp said, wasn't it, before the uh, Champions League final just last week. We're recording this just a week or so after the Champions League final because uh, uh, Bayern Munich want to sign Sadio Mane and, and, and have been quite vocal about that. And Klopp rather ironically sort of like saying, well, it's not the first time that uh, I've uh, been subject to transfer speculation from, from Bayern Munich. And I think probably thinking about that Mario Goetze thing, although obviously the relationship is very different. But, you know, I mean, Bayern are the top dogs in German football and they will use whatever 
tools and means they can to gain an advantage over over their opponents and that's how they have for so many years remained one of the reasons why they've remained so so dominant it's not just about money it's about tactics and mind games and 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 getting the right people in and and this is part of it and it leads to sour taste in the mouth for the people who don't like buying and don't follow buying but if you do follow buying then it's 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 admirable i guess <laughs> yeah well Klopp, he stayed bfb coach for three more years after that last title finishing second twice and finishing seventh in the last season at the club that sounds like a bad end to his stint but you have to keep in mind that Borussia actually were on a relegation place after the Hinrunde of the 2014-15 season. They actually, I think they lost to Werder Bremen on the last match day of the Hinrunde 2-1 at the Weserstadion with uh, Davy Selke and uh, Marvin <laughs> Lawrenson scoring the goals. No, they're not that bad. No, no. Don't, be, don't be down on Werder, Nick. Uh, don't be down on Marvin Lawrenson, who has not been seen in forever. But all things considered, how crucial was Klopp's stint between 2008 and 2015 at the club? Where would they have been without him today? So obviously it was a transformational period of the club's history, no question about that. Down on your knees, you know, uh, when he came and, you know, flying high at his absolute peak, but then they're just slightly off the boil when he left. I think what Silverware does to football clubs is it brings pedigree which can affect the mentality and the way in which a club perceives itself and the way in which it goes about its business. A lot of this is ethereal. It, it, it's difficult to measure. But a lot of it is actually etched into the stones and legs of a football club. And what Klopp was able to do was he was able to, to reinstill that sense of pride and pedigree into Borussia Dortmund when it looked like they could be looking at a prolonged period of mediocrity. So I think he rescued the club and was able to then expand the club's ambitions. Obviously, the club has expanded in ways that have got as much to do with the, the efforts of Aki Vatska and of Michal Zork as well, in terms of improving and upgrading and continuing to work with the club's facilities to provide the best training facilities. Michal Zork being able to attract the, you know, some amazing young, talented footballers to come to the club and portray them as a finishing school. The guys like Jaden Sancho. Bino Gittins, Jude Bellingham, coming over and saying, and Gio Reyna coming over and saying, well, look, this is where, and indeed Erling Haaland coming over and saying, this is where you will play Champions League, you will compete for titles. And then, you know, when the time is right, you know, the inference being is you'll move on to probably a bigger club for bigger for bigger money. One day, a dictatorship will sign your papers. <laughs> yeah, we'll go to a day, yeah, indeed. Well, yeah, it, Absolutely, and well, the less looking at you there, Erling. Um, the less said about that, the, the better. But that setup, I don't think, would have been as easy to have facilitated without that period of total success from Klopp, because it gave and continues to give young players the confidence that they will be able to come to a club and compete. And I think it probably gave them the financial lift to be able to continue to compete for those top four spaces. And while Dortmund's are diminished somewhat over the years, largely because Bayern have just gone on this absolute tear. You know, I think it would have been much harder to have reached the point where we are if we hadn't have had those those years with Klopp. And the memories that come with those victories, although they are moving over the horizon somewhat because it's been over a decade now, the memories, you know, are, are absolutely priceless and etched into the fabric of the club. So... You know, both in material and in ethereal and philosophically and spiritually. You know, I, th I think Dortmund would be a, a diminished club if we hadn't have had those years with Klopp. 
Right. If we glance into the future, I mean, there have been several coaches at Borussia Dortmund since Klopp. There's been Thomas Tuchel. Uh, that ended somewhat badly. There's been Lucien Favre. There's been Marco Rosa. I mean, what these guys have in common is that they tend to finish second uh, with Borussia Dortmund. And now Edin Terzic is uh, taking over the club. But if you look at the way money is spent, and you know, going back to Soconomics, the book I mentioned at the start of, of, of the show, is in Soconomics they actually worked out that the wages you pay are pretty much the best indicator for where you'll end up in the table. Now, Bayern Munich have outdone Borussia Dortmund with 158 million euros in staff wages. So that's all staff combined. So that includes analysts, scouts, and all that. But the lion's share of those 158 millions go actually into squat. So that is a massive mountain to climb. I mean, the difference between Bayern and Borussia Dortmund is bigger than the difference between Borussia Dortmund and a team like Werder Bremen, for instance, who were in 13th in that wage table, by the way. So how, how can you bridge that gap, if ever? Okay, well, I mean, I th- I, just to re-emphasize your point, I think you're right. I think the principle is that you pay high wages, then you will achieve what you want to achieve. There will be outliers. There will be clubs that are really badly run. So, dare I say it, Schalke, Werder Bremen in Germany, you know, Hamburg, higher wage payers, not very well-run clubs. And, you know, they've had difficulties. But in general, if you pay decent wages, you will get what you want from football over a period of time. You know, maybe not on the odd season where things don't go so well. Over here in England, we have a club called Everton. I'm sure many of the people have heard of them. They spend huge amounts of money on wages and are an absolute basket case for a football club and nearly got relegated. So there are exceptions. But in general, yes, that principle, I think, holds up. So the only really way that Dortmund are going to, or any club for that matter, are going to be able to bridge that gap is either by finding new investment that is going to be able to put in the kind of money to, to do that, which is extremely unlikely for any number of reasons, not least of which is the Bundesliga ownership model just doesn't lend itself to that. Or you look at the way in which Bundesliga clubs are getting their income and then you redistribute it differently. And so we're talking TV money, aren't we? Yeah. And we're talking about the redistribution of TV money so it's more equitable, which is what we've been seeing in Spain And as a consequence, we've been seeing some interesting teams emerging in the last few years in Spain. One might argue that the good work that Sevilla and and Real Betis have done in Spain could be put down perhaps to their increasing prospects because there's been a renegotiation of the distribution of income in in that league. And maybe this is something that Bundesliga needs to look at. Yeah, I mean, the gap between the first place and the last place uh, in the Premier League is about 40% when it comes to the total amount received of TV money. That gap is a lot bigger in the Bundesliga. And, you know, you have Bayern München and you, at not least Borussia Dortmund, Bayer Leverkusen, all those teams at the top saying, no, 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 we, we need it that way. But, hey, I think in terms of um, having a fairer playing ground for everyone, uh, it would be in the interest of the league and, and the excitement in the league to do something about that, but that doesn't really cut it for me enough. Uh, I mean, what we should also look at is what Ajax have done in the Netherlands. Uh, they've actually given some of their Champions League money to other clubs, and that should be happening in Germany as well, because the income from the Champions League and playing there year in, year out, and you know, always reaching at least the quarterfinals, that monetary advantage that is gained by clubs like Bayern, it's too huge to bridge for any club. And I'm not saying that 
it should be a lot, but I, you know, at least something. Um, because right now the Bundesliga, it's not as exciting as it should be or could be. And additionally, I mean, yes, I want 50 plus one to stay. You know, I'd rather take 10 more years of Bayern than, you know, having somebody like uh, Manchester City's owners or Newcastle's owners running a club in the Bundesliga. Let me be abundantly clear about that. But, um, you know, in terms of, of the end product, interest in the Bundesliga has veined internationally. And that is because of Bayern's good fortunes, I'm afraid. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say about the relaxing of 50 plus one, because I think what you, or you'd also be looking at the, the, the possibility of money coming in from Russia into the Bundesliga uh, rather than necessarily the Middle East. But, but I mean, I think either way that you skin it, I don't, it's not a desirable outcome. And ultimately also, yeah, I mean, there are some, you know, the realities about football in, you know, modern football, professional football is that, you know, the, the teams that with the biggest support will tend to be the teams that do the best. And there's some integrity about that. That kind of makes sense. If your if your team is well supported, then then it will continue to do well. And that tends to be how it's done. If you look at the disproportionate amounts of money that are being earned, on the other hand, and then look at it that way and think, well, you still need to have some kind of equitable arrangement with the rest of your league so that you can continue to make things competitive. Even if all the income was distributed fairly from today, for example, and we had a completely different funding model, you know, I say fairly, that's probably not very kind. Equally, let's say that, or equitable, equitably you'd still probably feel that the bigger clubs would still end up at the top and the smaller clubs would still end up at the bottom because that's really how it should work. But what you want to create is an environment and a situation whereby the smaller clubs can fairly keep plugging away, keep working, doing their best. And if they do their best, move further and further up the table and have that chance to expand their supporter base, to become popular you know, nationally as well as locally to perhaps become popular internationally and then be able to bring in money that way and then over time to be able to actually maybe, who knows, one day compete and without having to sell your soul to a Russian oligarch or to a Middle Eastern country or or, or to an energy drinks provider, (laughs) you know. I mean, to be able to do it right and to be able to do it the right way or to Big Pharma. It's a bit different with Leverkusen. They're a works club. I feel a little bit better inclined towards them. But Don't you say anything nasty about Markranstadt. But you have to look at providing opportunities for smaller clubs to be able to fairly and squarely improve themselves without having to take financial shortcuts, which is what so many of them do. And so any financial settlement should be approached with that in mind. So, you know, if you want Darmstadt, will probably never be as big as... Bayern Munich, right? <laughs> Darmstadt may never be uh, like the next Borussia Dortmund. But what's desirable would be to get to a point where Darmstadt, if they get their act together and they put together a really, really good team and a good squad of players, that they are rewarded for that good work and that this is then elevates them and puts them in a position where they can at least try and dream of being in that place or at least be able to play them every week. And I don't think these are unrealistic things to aim for. And I think that they're perfectly uh, cromulent. They're perfectly sporting. It's perfectly sporting to say that. So give people the opportunity. So you go, okay, a second division team does well, gets promoted, 
has a really, really good bunch of lads, good squad of players, but you know they're going to be back in the second division in a few years' time because that squad's going to get, going to get picked clean and they don't have the money or resources to be able to manage that. You know, what about if we lived in a world where that didn't happen? Further asking themselves that no. very question at the moment. <laughs> sort of like um, where... <laughs> as I, you know, I think arguably the squad in the Bundesliga 2 was stronger than the Bundesliga side they feel at the following season after being promoted. They had, for instance, uh, David Raum, the, the guy who became a German international at Hoffenheim. Um, you know, he, he was picked clean. I mean, they, they lost pretty much their three or four best players from that promotion season. And, uh, and that was that, basically. And you, you pretty much knew that uh, their relegation was a foregone conclusion before the season started, really. So, so you know, let's, let's come up with a, with a formula that discourages, you know, that sort of thing from happening. Somewhere, somewhere Uli Hoeneß is sitting and nodding along knowingly. <laughs> I mean, it's difficult, isn't it, obviously? And, I mean, because sometimes players, they have, obviously players have ambitions and they say, well, I don't want to be a Karlsruhe player for 10 years. I want to play for Bayern Munich or Dortmund or Real Madrid or I don't want to go to the Premier League and, and earn, you know, shit tons of cash and, 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 and win stuff. And I get that. Um, and I'm not suggesting that it's that that, that it's utopian, my guys. But uh, but I do feel that there's more that can be done to make it easier for clubs to keep hold of their best players for longer, uh, and to reward them, you know, financially for being good and winning football matches. You know, that for me makes sense. I don't think that happens. I don't think it will happen. No, um, not with uh, the current threat of a European Super League being started. But uh, no, I mean. And on that note, let's end <laughs> this mini-series about Borussia Dortmund's ascent to greatness in the 90s, their fall in the early noughts, and their return to glory under Jurgen Klopp. Terry, I've been enjoying this tremendously, and if some of our listeners don't know where to find you on Twitter and where they can find your work, here's your chance to tell them all. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at Terry DeFellin, uh, so you can catch me there, but uh, what would be lovely would be, if you've made any sense of my incoherent ramblings over the last three episodes, would be for you to buy my book it's Borussia Dortmund a history in black and yellow and it's uh, available on ebook now it's available on paper versions you can get it from Ockley and Amazon but uh, you can also buy the ebook version uh, for less than a tenner uh, and it's available in all good ebook stores now as you just and you'll be you know go there now and you'll download it and you can be reading it in minutes seconds even <laughs> there you go you should definitely do that this episode has been produced by Aiden Raintool. The entire series has been scripted by me, Nick Viltong. You can find me on Twitter as well, at NormUsings. Make sure to follow the podcast on Twitter, at TalkingFoosball. We hope you enjoyed this series. Until next time, it is goodbye for now. Goodbye.